Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Tom Williams here. Before we jump into today's uh, program on the centennial of the National Park System, I wanted to get this email in from yesterday. You recall yesterday we revisited a program from May on a National Geographic documentary called Driving America, which took a look at the automobile's impact on American society. We got talking about favorite cars, and here was uh, here's Steve's email. He says, the original Datsun Z car imported into the States was the 240Z, named for its 2.4-liter straight-six motor. The design elements were stolen principally from Ferrari and Jaguar. This was during the early 1970s when emissions controls were starting to, to be required by law, and these diverted power away from the wheels. So Datsun increased the displacement to 2.6 liters for one year, renaming the car the 260Z and then to 2.8 liters, thus the 280Z, the final version of the original car. Steve says, I owned a 1974 260Z, a 2-plus-2, two two, a 4-seater, which had especially pretty lines. I adored that car and kept it for decades. Thanks for the email, Steve. You can uh, keep those uh, coming with your email at upraxis at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The National Park Service turns 100 on August 25th 2016 this year and today we're kicking off a series of programs focusing on america's national parks in the first part of the program today we'll be talking with robert ratcliffe chief of the national park services conservation recreation and community assistance programs we'll talk about the national park services plans for the centennial including the every kid in a park campaign later in the program today our guest is writer photographer and conservationist kim hecox He's lived in Alaska for 25 years and has written four books for National Geographic, most recently, The National Parks and Illustrated History. We bring in first uh, Bob Ratcliffe, who is chief of the National Park Service's Conservation, Recreation, and Community Assistance uh, Programs. And uh, Bob Ratcliffe, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so let me get a little bit of your background. You've you've done a lot. You've uh, You've taught university level. I think you've worked for the BLM. You've even uh, worked for uh, as an advisor uh, to the to Senate to conservation yep. uh, issues. Um, you bet. Uh, you know, lived in the West for a long time in Utah as well, and as a river guide and outfitter, and uh, uh, went to school out there in Arizona, and uh, spent my whole life around uh, management of public lands and uh, especially recreation and parks. Where in Utah were you? I was in Jensen. Utah. Oh, and, okay. And uh, Moab, sometime, and even uh, right there in Salt Lake City. Well, I grew up in Vernal, so I know Jensen. Oh, well. there you go. Well, yeah. you know Jensen, then a booming metropolis <laughs> out there by Dinosaur <laughs> National Monument. It is. It's right on the river. A national park nowadays. <clears throat> so uh, you were at Dinosaur National Monument then. That's right. Okay. I got to be the backcountry river ranger for a few years. Best oh. job I ever had. Wonderful. Yeah, beautiful country. Well, yeah, it's 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 um, I guess a tough gig, but somebody has to do it, right? To <laughs> absolutely to do that, yeah. Uh, so years of training led me to that. That's yeah, right. yeah. Uh, so this is a big deal, the centennial of the National Park Service, um, and I, I imagine there's been a lot of planning leading up to this year. Uh, give oh, me a absolutely. brief brief overview. Yeah, you only of what's turned one hundred once, and That's true. Uh, it's an incredible opportunity for the Park Service, not only to sort of reflect on the legacy of parks uh, for America, but uh, also what, you know, what should be and what can be the National Park Service in, in the future in the next hundred years. Um, one of the 
challenges I think we face uh, in the national parks is to ensure that they're relevant to the next generation. So much of our uh, campaign and the celebration uh, is around uh, building awareness about the parks and uh, about the, um, you know, that they're more than just Yellowstone and Yosemite, that parks are in our own backyard. Our campaign is focused on Find Your Park, our multimedia campaign, and it doesn't say Find Your National Park. It says Find Your Park, your special place, places you like to visit and go to and, and uh, uh, sort of develop the, uh, a relationship with uh, something that has meaning for you and everyone out there. I've been looking at uh, something called the Call to Action. There's Call to Action Plan, right? Uh, yes. And a, a couple. Yes, in, in anticipation and in, in planning uh, for the centennial, the Park Service reflected and called in uh, hundreds of partners and constituents and community leaders uh, uh, to develop a Call to Action Plan that sort of outlined uh, a way to move forward and how do we can best engage the American public, uh, generate. Uh, a, the next generation of citizen stewards uh, in support of the parks, but also uh, how we can do better at uh, protecting the parks and promoting the parks, you know, and, and getting more people to visit uh, uh, one of our 409 units out there. We have a lot of parks, and uh, but as I said, it's, uh, it's not just about the national parks. It's about the park idea, uh, about protected spaces, and no matter who manages them, uh, the parks in our own backyard. One of the bullet points here, um, it's called In My Backyard. Mm-hmm. What do you tell me about that? It seems Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think, uh, as I said, uh, a lot of people think about national parks as these iconic places like Yosemite or Yellowstone, but, but many parks are, uh, the value of parks and the benefit of parks are right near and close to home, uh, where you walk the dog every day, where your kids play, uh, where you get to go uh, camping on the weekend, where there's state parks or or local, uh, local parks where you, you know, participate in outdoor recreation activities. And those have the most definite meaning and uh, relevancy for everyone in their daily lives. So the Park Service recognizes this, and we really are embarked on uh, outreach opportunities to engage um, uh, people, especially in urban places, you know, like the Wasatch Front and elsewhere, um, where they can in, enjoy and participate in parks. Your own Jordan River Trail uh, through the through the valley was uh, facilitated by a, uh, the planning for it was facilitated by a national parks program called Rivers Trails and Conservation Assistance. So the the national parks has uh, programs that extend beyond the boundaries of uh, parks that help communities uh, create green spaces and uh, um, the park opportunities near near home. Tell me about the Every Kid in a Park campaign. Oh, this is something that we're very excited about. Um, of course, uh, we're interested in sort of engaging the next generation, sort of um, helping kids realize that there's more than uh, screen time and virtual world out there where they can have fun and, and enjoy the outdoors. So Every Kid in a Park campaign is an effort uh, by uh, the National Park Service and all the other public, federal public land agencies and many other partners to get every fourth grader a free pass to the public lands if, they, if they'd like one. And we, we sort of targeted fourth graders for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them is that uh, in most cases, they only have one teacher. So uh, getting, getting school groups out becomes easier. 
It's also the year that uh, many states have uh, envir introduced environmental education programs, as well as uh, history and learning programs about the, the culture and, and uh, history of their states. So uh, uh, this program is intended to be long-lived, uh, you know, into the in perpetuity. Uh, and we envision that if we can get every fourth grader an opportunity to go out to a park sometime during that school year, they can, um, over a period of 12 years, we've hit, we would have uh, touched the lives of uh, almost every kid in a generation. So the, the goal is to uh, continue this program in perpetuity, if we can, and uh, offering free passes uh, to fourth graders during their school year. What is it that uh, kids and adults would get out of get out of going to the parks? Uh, well, I think you know one of the things having kids myself and knowing you know and remembering those years uh, uh, with a, a, any any fourth grader or any fourth grade teacher or, uh, or uh, can get online and get uh, get a download a, a pass and and I you know it's kind of like a golden ticket. It gives it empowers them over their parents a little bit to say, hey, take me out to a park. And it, it facilitates families getting outdoors and spending time together. And then uh, uh, it begins to instill the sense of stewardship and ownership of, uh, of these parks are their places uh, that they can go and they can enjoy. So, uh, you know, over time, I think, um, you know, part of us, uh, many of us grew up in a generation where playing outdoors was uh, just part of growing up. And uh, uh, the values we learned, uh, how to get along with one another, uh, exploration and curiosity are uh, a big part of that. So uh, we're just trying to do what we can to get more uh, kids outdoors and uh, participating in healthy, active lifestyles. We have a listener in uh, southern Utah. I'll ask a question on her behalf. Um, she is disabled, and her, her big concern is access for for disabled people to the to the parks Are there any initiatives wonderful uh, question the park service has uh, really been very proactive in accessibility uh, work with a whole team of people here who um, help make our parks more accessible all of us uh, many years ago I was told uh, that all of us are only uh, uh, temporarily able uh, eventually uh, everyone uh, needs access or assistance in some way so uh, we have a very strong program and a desire to make especially our developed parks, our larger parks, uh, more accessible to, to, to everyone um, and, and also accessible in other means, not just uh, for persons with disabilities, but also uh, people uh, who need to get to the parks for, uh, through public transportation, for example. Um, it's in increasingly important to make uh, parks open and available to everyone. Um, they're clearly, you know, one of the most democratic uh, uh, examples of democracy that we have. They're free and open and available to everyone and should be accessible to everyone. Here is an email from Glenn. I'll uh, get this in here. Um, he says, Happy anniversary to the National Park Service. He goes on to say, I've made it a point to visit all the national parks in the U.S. Call it a bucket list. So far, I've made it to most of the parks on the in the West although they are underfunded in my opinion they're excellent proof that they're vital and should be even more ubiquitous they go beyond just simple geographical legacy due to the influences from my experiences at the parks and especially on public lands i've uh, formed an opinion about the current debate about federal ownership of land in utah and other western states i feel that once the lands if they 
uh, end up being transferred to the state level will lose the multi-use designation, which is admittedly difficult to do largely successfully. I feel that lands would eventually be sold to private entities. Let's not venture into the topic of uh, corrupt dealings between cozy special interests such as developers and extractive groups and government. The lands would then end up uh, fenced and encumbered with no trespassing signs. I think many who support the transfer haven't thought this far ahead or even considered that eventuality. Just a humble editorial. That's from Glenn. I don't know if you want to comment on any uh, any of the controversy. Uh, well, it, you know, the, uh, the National Park Service and all our federal lands are uh, resources for all Americans. And, and uh, you know, the value and, and cost associated with uh, management of those lands is, is significant. And, and uh, to keep them um, available and open for multiple use in the case of uh, the Forest Service or the BLM or in the case of the Park Service, and, uh, you know, protection in perpetuity is extremely important for all Americans. This is our legacy. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we can work and we do work very closely with communities across the country in the management of those uh, federal lands, but uh, they're a resource for all Americans. Um, the National Park Service has, uh, you know, just as, an, as a thought, um, you know, in our lives, when something's old but valuable to you, you put it in the attic and keep it. Um, well, the National Park Service is sort of America's attic. It's full of uh, treasures of all kinds, and, uh, you know, it, all those facilities require extensive maintenance and, and uh management and uh, whether it's Alcatraz Island or uh, Ellis Island on the other side of the country uh, there's infrastructure that needs uh, support so the Park Service is challenged by an 11 billion dollar or more uh, 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 deficit in its deferred maintenance for all these facilities roads and trails and tunnels uh, so it's a major challenge and if the states were to take over some of these lands they'd have to accept a lot of that liability so I do agree with that and that's uh, that's one big subset of this argument is is a disagreement on how much that would cost and you know whether the state could do it. Um, uh, by the way, Glenn, and congratulations on your goal and and good luck to visit all the national parks in the U.S. That, yeah, that's, that's a lot of parks. That's a challenge, yes. <laughs> yeah. But but a wonderful one hundred and nine uh, in counting. What a wonderful challenge. Uh, finally, uh, Bob Ratcliffe. Um, I wonder if you could expand. You, you, you made reference to this a little bit earlier. Um, a challenge to balance use and enjoyment with protection uh -huh. and preservation. That's an ongoing uh -huh. challenge. That'll be a challenge, I'm guessing, you know, throughout the next hundred years. Uh, how do you balance that? Well, absolutely. You know, we, uh, in the Park Service and all the federal lands, we, you know, we'll take uh, uh, too many visitors over apathy any day. Right. You know, there's nothing worse than being irrelevant and, and not having value to the American public. So so getting people to the parks is our primary goal. But um, also, uh, you know, letting them know that uh, uh, visitation in and of itself is, is, is a challenge for us. And as many of your listeners know, uh, park use is up uh, considerably in the last year. And with our Find Your Park campaign, uh, it's only going to increase. Um, and our hope is that we can inform visitors and people who would like to visit the parks about our lesser visited parks and uh, so they can make choices about the time of year they visit or uh, season of use or maybe some of these places that are just as beautiful and as remarkable, uh, whether they're national parks or BLM lands or uh, Forest Service lands, uh, that uh, they understand that they can visit those places too and have remarkable experiences. Um, so part of it is setting expectations for people, managing uh, large numbers of people, 
uh, will always be a challenge, uh, but we're ready and able to accept that challenge and, and hopefully uh, uh, continue to maintain a very high-quality experience for our visitors uh, in, in the years to come. Where can people go for information on Centennial Events, uh, National Park Service website? Is that the best place? All right. Well, I've got a couple of great websites. Of course, uh, um, nps.gov is one of our is our primary um, uh, website. We also have the everykidinapark.gov, which tells you about the Every Kid in a Park initiative and program. Uh, also, uh, you know, we have uh, National Park Foundation, and they're at nationalparks.org, uh, where uh, we are actively uh, engaged in um, uh, promoting philanthropy and donation and volunteerism uh, in our national parks. So, uh, you know, any of those sites are uh, full of information. And at the same time, I just want to mention also we are we're working with a program to raise funds uh, for programs that get youth outdoors. And uh, you can check out that website at crowdrise.com slash park. And if you have a program, or you want to work with us in getting kids outdoors, uh, that might be something to take a look at. Well, thank you very much. Uh, We've been talking with Bob Ratcliffe, Chief of the National Park Service's Conservation, Recreation, and Community Assistance Programs. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate it. The National Park Service turns 100 in August of this year. We're uh, kicking off a series of programs on the National Parks, and uh, in the next half of the program, coming uh, up after a break... We're going to be talking with uh, writer and conservationist photographer Kim Hecox. He's lived in Alaska for 25 years. He's written four books for National Geographic, most recently the National Parks and Illustrated History. Stay tuned. More follows the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. If you're asking yourself why your customer isn't buying your product or service, then maybe you don't know your customer. Excellent companies have regular dialogues with their customer. Customer relationships and service should be a part of every employee's responsibility. For example, a hospital system recently trained its housekeeping staff, the people who clean the patient's rooms, on how to better listen to patients because they're there with the patient. Your value is defined by your customers, not your marketing people or strategic planners. Customers tell us why they buy and we just have to listen. Create excellence in your company by really listening to your customers and knowing how to bring value to them. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. The National Park Service turns 100 on August 25th of this year. Today we're kicking off a series of programs focusing on America's national parks. Earlier in the program, we heard from uh, Bob Ratcliffe, Chief of the National Park Service's Conservation, Recreation, and Community Assistance Programs. Now we bring in Kim Hecox, who is a writer, photographer, conservationist. He's lived in Alaska for 25 years. He's written uh, four books for National Geographic, most recently The National Parks and Illustrated History, He's author of several other books, including Alaska Light and a memoir, only The Only Kayak, A Journey into the Heart of Alaska. And uh, his novel, Jimmy Bluefeather, won the 2015 National Outdoor Book Award for Literary Fiction. Kim Hecox joins us from Alaska. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. 
welcome. Thank you for having me. Where, where about in Alaska? I live in a little town called Gustavus, uh, near Juneau. So you have to fly into Juneau on commercial jet and then take a small single-engine airplane and fly about 50 miles west-northwest of Juneau, and you arrive in Gustavus. It's right next to Glacier Bay National Park. Oh, beautiful. And uh, looking at your photographs, it's, it looks like a beautiful, uh, you know, makes you want to go to Alaska. Um, right. S- yeah, it's be- it is, it's cold and dark here right now, but yeah, it's it's nice in the summertime. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I have to remember in the wintertime, not not much light. Uh, so what took you to Alaska? I think you did not grow up in Alaska. Right. I studied geology in Washington State, and I was on a field trip with a professor. He was a very dynamic speaker, and we were out and out and traveling in western Montana, looking at glacial landscapes. And we lamented, the students lamented, that we wished there was a, a landscape still in America today where there were active glaciers creating the landscape, advancing and retreating. And he said, there is such a place, it's a bay up in Alaska near Juneau called Glacier Bay. And I resolved then, I was, what, I was 20, 22 maybe, I resolved right then that I was going to go work in Glacier Bay National Monument then, back in the 1970s. And it took me, I had to, you know, I, I hustled and built up my resume, finally got employment with the National Park Service, which was very exciting for me, and made my way through Death Valley, California, <laughs> and then from there up to Glacier Bay. So uh, you've written several books on the national parks, and uh, when, you know, when, when you contemplate the centennial, which is this year, what, uh, what's, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Gratitude. I, I just can't believe that in our hyper-capitalistic society and culture that we have the vision and the courage and the strength to create these places and hold on to them. It just blows my mind. And there, uh, there's so much diversity. You know, we, we think of Yosemite and Yellowstone, and uh, we're blessed in Utah to have uh, several wonderful national parks. But uh, as I was uh, thumbing through your book, electronically thumbing through your book, um, your latest book, some wonderful photographs here. I, I came upon this photograph of the White Sands National Monument in New Mexico. It, it's sand. <laughs> it's sa- right. sand dunes as far as the eye can see. There, there's just a, a great diversity and, and uh, wide, wild variety. It's gypsum. It's white. It's beautiful. It's stunning. Yes, the diversity is amazing. Over, over 400 units, and some of them, I mean, they're monuments, they're preserves, they're seashores. Lake shores, battlefield sites, military sites, places that celebrate uh, women's role in American history, cultural diversity. Stunning! It's really a stunning assemblage of of American scenery, science, history, culture, and achievement. And here's another photograph. This is of the Lincoln Memorial, um, a monument, uh, and we forget that's part of the Park Service. Right. Many of those famous sites within Washington, D.C. are administered by the National Park Service. Uh, absolutely. I want to, um, by the way, if you go to your uh, website, um, let me uh, pull that up here, which is, uh, was it, Kim, KimHecox.com? Yes, sir, yes. Okay. Uh, there's a, a tab which uh, has a bunch of Kimisms. Tell me, first of all, what Kimisms are. Well, I, I'm a writer, and I have um, maybe a dozen books been published, and it's great because you get nice correspondence from readers, and, and they pull out quotes from my books, my memoirs and novels that they especially liked, and they send them to me. I really love this line. And I 
thought, well, my wife and I thought, we should just tab these up and begin to collect these. And I guess when I write, I think in aphorisms and epigrams. One of my favorite writers is Edward Abbey. He spent a lot of time in Utah working. He was a seasonal park ranger in Arches National Monument then back in the mid-1950s, wrote a great book called Desert Solitaire and many other books. And he wrote in the same manner. You, you, you come up with these little nuggets, epigrams or aphorisms, and I was just molded that way as a young writer, I believe. I, I don't really intend to do it when I set out to write, but they just come along and I sprinkle them in there and readers respond to that. So I put them on my website. And, and they, I can't remember who first coined the term. One of my friends said, oh, those sh- you should call those Kimisms. So I put them on my website. <laughs> They're fun. By the way, you've, you've been called uh, the Abbey of the North. I guess you that you take that as a compliment. I, I do. I, that, that stunned me. That came from John Waterman, uh, Jonathan Waterman. He's a Colorado writer. Right, so I'll take it. That's nice. Yeah, right. Well, uh, before I get into some of these uh, Kimisms, because uh, some of these are, are good conversation starters, um, uh, Ed Abbey, uh, an influence. Uh, who uh, you've, you've written a book on John Muir. Do you count him as an influence? Absolutely, yes. Mark Twain, a tremendous influence. Uh, when I read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, I just couldn't believe it. I think it's maybe the, the greatest American novel ever. And uh, Abbey, of course... I was in my early 20s when, uh, you know, uh, Desert Solitaire was published when I was just finishing high school, but then the Monkey Wrench Gang, and a tremendous influence on me. I hitchhiked from my hometown of Spokane, Washington, down through Utah, and met so many great people and just fell in love with the canyon country of Utah. I never did find Edward Abbey. He was everywhere and nowhere, of mm-hmm. course, because right. of his books, and everybody's talking about him. But I never did meet him in person. As you've mentioned that, I'm juxtaposing in my mind the canyon country, desert areas of Utah, with my what I imagine Alaska to be, lush and green and watered. Yes, exact opposite. I live in a world of tidewater glaciers and humpback whales and rivers of ice that come down from the mountains all the way to the sea. Very unlike Utah, beautiful in its own way, but... I love Utah. I, I, I could spend a lot of time there. I'm, I'm pleased to be talking to you from in Utah, actually. Yeah, we are we are blessed with some some wonderful country here. Let me just read a, a couple of these chemisms and uh, have you have you expand on these and get us into a discussion of the meaning of, of national parks and of wildlands. Sure. Uh, first of these is from Rhythm of the Wild, your book. Uh, you say, as every national park is a land of stories, every visit to a national park is a search for our place in that story for the divine in each of us. It's a search for something that might explain who we are and ought to be. And the second is from your book, only The Only Kayak. Travel through this country and move through more than geography. You move through time. Trace your finger over glacial striations in metamorphic rock. Stare into the fractured blue walls of the Ice Age. And you'll find they're not walls at all. They're windows. I swear sometimes I find myself wondering if glaciers like crows will once again unfold an indigo wing over the land and steal the light. Beautiful, by the way. Thank you. Right. Those, those are... The Only Kayak is a memoir about my 30 years living in Glacier Bay, and Rhythm of the Wild is about my 30-year relationship with Denali National Park, two national parks in Alaska. And the, the, the reference to the indigo wing folding over the land is 
the, gla- the idea that glaciers ebb and flow just like the tides, and they move back and forth over the land, and will they return one day? And part of me hopes they will, to, to have a clean slate and start all over again, and, and just to witness that, oh my goodness, and see what that would be like. Um, is a, is an exciting notion to me. I, I guess it comes all the way from when I studied sciences and geology in, in college many years ago. And to think that the world is such a dynamic place that we have in Alaska things called galloping glaciers, that they can advance uh, hundreds of feet in a day because of all the meltwater that collects under them and seems to super lubricate the glacier at a certain event. And spreads out under the glacier, and the ice drops in elevation, but shoots out forward, and we get these galloping glaciers. And they might, this event might occur only once every 40 or 50 years, but it's very dramatic when it does. Uh, thinking about ice, um, and I want to maybe divert us a little bit uh, briefly to climate change. And you've written recently on your blog, kimhecox.com, uh, about the... I guess what we're calling it, the Paris outcome? Or does, make, does this make you more hopeful than you were before? It does a little bit. There's a long way to go. Uh, the, it, it's unprecedented, and that's great. Um, that what they, they achieved something in Paris that they did not achieve in Rio or Kyoto or Copenhagen, and that's good. And so I'll take every little success that we can get. I think we're up against a tremendous challenge. But I, I sort of like this think that golden opportunities mask themselves as insurmountable challenges. We've been down this road before in human history, and we can, we can meet this challenge. And if we learn to see it as uh, many exciting possibilities to move into the clean energy revolution and come out the other side, all the better for it. And in time, having done it before it's too late, that's exciting to me. Um, you you write about geology, you about, write about geologic time, and then with that in mind, uh, I juxtapose this with a funny line from The Only Kayak. Um, let's see. My high school reunions are beginning to look more like archaeological digs than social events, <laughs> which, which I can, that resonates with me. <laughs> so I wonder if you talk a little bit about what how we find ourselves in, you know, in on land, which has been developing for eons. Right. It's remarkable, isn't it, how you can write anything about your high school experience and readers relate to it everywhere. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> you know, just tell a, high, tell a story from high school. But, right, the land is, it's remarkable. If you, if you learn to listen to the land and, and learn from the land, it has a lot to tell us, a lot to teach us and on so many levels intellectually and emotionally and spiritually. I, it's profound, really. I, I feel so sorry for people that, that, that never develop uh, a, a relationship with, with the landscape, and that's why national parks are so valuable, because they, they belong to everyone and to no one. So come on in. The door's open. They're not locked up. They're locked open. And they're, they're, each one is like a university. It's, it, you, you, there's no end to the amount of learning that we can achieve there. The, uh, they hold the answers to questions we've not even yet learned to ask. They're, they're stunning. And they're beautiful, too. They're, and they're fun. 
Now there, there's money squeeze on uh, preserving the parks, and and um, in some parks are getting overcrowded. What do you think when when we look at the next hundred years? What do you think are the biggest right problems we have to solve? Comments earlier in your program were very very good. They, we'll take overcrowding versus apathy. So yes, there are many management challenges, and really only twice in the 100 year history of the National Park Service. Has the National Park Service been flush with money? And that was in the, ironically, in the 1930s with the CCC program instituted by FDR, when the nation itself was in uh, economic straits. And yet there was a lot of money being pumped into the into the then young National Park Service. And then again, from 1956 to 1966, the program called Mission 66 to build up the infrastructure of the national parks in preparation for the 50-year anniversary of the Park Service in 1966. The Park Service was founded in 1916. That's it. Those are the only two times mm-hmm. in the history of the Park Service when there's been, uh, they've been flush with money. So money is always a challenge. And there's a lot of antagonism now uh, uh, against public lands in from certain corners of America, that there's there's not a lot of support. So it takes partnerships. The one thing that's really has been essential in the National Park Service and the survival of the National Parks, if you think about it, has always been partnerships, first with, with the railroads, to bring people out west um, to the parks, and moving through with women's groups and veterans groups when all of the war sites in 1933 were brought in from the War Department to the National Park Service. And all those um, historical preservation societies then began to partner with the Park Service. Moving all the way up to today, partnering with the Nature Conservancy, for example, and trails organizations and outdoor and education organizations all across America. The Park Service has excelled, I believe, at, at developing strong partnerships, and that's helped its survival greatly. Do you think we need a new uh, Civilian Conservation Corps? Do you think that could pass? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, when I graduated from high school, the Vietnam War was still going on, and, and, and both my older brothers had gone to Vietnam, and my mom hated that war. She wanted to take me to Canada. And the lottery was such, I, I pulled a high number, I didn't have to go. I didn't really know what to do, though. I eventually went to college and got my degree and found my footing. But I think it would have been so good for me to have had a CCC type of thing back then that I could have um, AmeriCorps or something of that nature and gone to work, you know, swinging an axe or using a shovel and working myself good and hard and really learning what good hard work is. I did go to work for the Forest Service and the Park Service and worked on trail crews, but right, I, I think it'd be great if we could institute a, another, a new CCC. And, and also critically important is getting kids outside. They, this whole idea of them walking down the streets with headphones on and looking at their little iPhone, they call, they call it the walking zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Clueless about the natural world around them, and it's to their own detriment, really, I believe. What What are they missing? Well, the, the, they would tell they're, you, oh, I've got a whole world, you know, inside my device. Yeah, they're, what they're missing is the healing properties of nature. They're actually missing deep connectivity in their brains. Their whole synapses, their whole nerve endings in their brains 
are being rewired. It's called the read the book called The Shallows. It's all about how our the human brain structure, because of these iPhones and iPods and superficial, shallow devices that are not allowing our brains to read long stories, to go through a book page by page, to walk through a landscape canyon by canyon, and let that deep learning, that, that profound connectivity that's been with us for 99% of our evolution really shape us into a deep, deeply spiritual and intuitive and empathic human being. That's what they're missing. It's very important. Let's take a break. We're talking with Kim Hecox. He's a writer, a conservationist, a photographer. He's written several books from National Geographic. Uh, um, other books, um, including The Only Kayak, a memoir. And uh, we're talking about the National Park Service Centennial, which the specific date is August 25th of this year, and celebrations uh, going on all year. And uh, we're kicking off uh, several programs um, with uh, on this topic. Um, let me just read another Kimism as we go to break. We'll talk about more of these um, uh, from Kim Hecox as we go along. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. This is from The Only Kayak by him, uh, Kim Hecox. Nature wasn't for us to rise above, he says. It was to sink into, to sleep upon, and go bootless. And in silent protest, to walk the finest rugs and fanciest tile and leave our naked, muddy footprints as the signatures of new beginnings. More following the break. The coming El Nino could bring Southern California the water it needs if we can hang on to it. When it rains now, that water is largely lost to the LA River. What we're designing these projects to do and what the hope is is that that water will be collected here and then returned to the groundwater system. I'm Kai Rizdal. That story next time on Marketplace from APN. Join us Wednesday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Living on Earth, they're big, black, and fuzzy, and the drought has got them wandering the roads of the West. We've been really, really busy with bears all throughout the state this year. It's been, we've handled a lot of different urban wildlife bear complaints. I'm Steve Kerwood with some tricks of the trade to deal with wandering bears. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Kim Hecox, who is a writer, photographer, conservationist, climate change activist. He's written several books on the national parks. He's written other books as well. And uh, we're pleased to have him join us from Alaska, where he lives. You can join the program as well. We're talking about the national parks on the occasion this year of the National Park Service Centennial. The number is 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, Glenn uh, emails us again. He says, could you repeat the title of the book that your guest referred to on the topic of younger generation being buried in their electronics rather than letting the mind move through a long story or in a big book? That's from Glenn. So, uh, Kim Hecox, what was the book you referenced? The Shallows, S-H-A-L-L-O-W-S. The Shallows, okay. Yes. 
uh, put that out, out there available for people to read. And we will put that on our website as well, uh, just a little bit later today. Um, Kim Hecox, I wonder if you have any comment on this, uh, this controversy that uh, Glenn uh, emailed us about earlier. Um, people in Utah are very familiar with this, and this is a, a push by some to transfer federal lands to state control. Uh, those who want multiple use, environmentalists and such, are skeptical of this. And then Glenn expressed those opinions. Uh, people on the other side say that uh, if it's closer to local control, then, it, then it's so much the better. I wonder what you think. And no, I, yes, that's, that's, that's an ongoing issue. It always has been and probably always will be. I think that's because the, the reason for that local control, uh, it reminds me of in Alaska when the powerful senators in Alaska wanted to create an EPA office, uh, an office of the Environmental Protection Agency in Alaska that would regulate Alaska so that then they could have much better control over the EPA and the decisions made in Alaska and, and basically regulate the EPA and control its budget and water it down such for, you know, for all these large projects. And if you really... If you look carefully at, at these issues, it always comes down to to economics. I, I have a line in one of my books, there'll always be a good economic argument to overcrowd an experience until we determine what a good economy is. And I, I think if, I regard these national parks as sacred places. I think they're that important to our well-being, to our spiritual well-being. I think they're the original church. And we don't, we don't walk into a city and go up to a cathedral or a synagogue or a mosque and say, we want to take control over a portion of this so that why? So that we can actually make more money. We can actually figure out a way to put more people to work and make more money here. That's that's not even on the that's not even on the table, and so a lot of my writing focuses on the fact that if we want to save ourselves, we, we save these national parks so they in turn will one day save us. That you know that there's more to wealth and and uh, security than just it's called the money cult than just. Having a lot of money, putting a lot of people to work. Um, I, I was just looking, thinking the other day that real wealth is an absence of drudgery and unwanted commitments. It's not always uh, how much money you can be making. So I think these national parks, they challenge us to, they're the brake on the wheel in some respects. I recognize that. And that's why I said earlier that it's a miracle that we have them in the first place because we're so hyper-capitalistic and hyper-consumptive. And that's not always, I think, a great thing. I don't think they should be in states' control. I think they should be in federal control. Um, and when I hear about federal tyranny, like these ranchers taking over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, I roll my eyes. I spent time in the Soviet Union, in Bulgaria and Romania, and the Eastern Bloc countries. I, I knew guys, dissidents. I, I, I saw the scars on their backs and their broken hands. I knew what real tyranny was. These guys, they have no idea what real tyranny is. 
Uh, it's, I, I think it's pathetic, really, and sad. Um, I think in many respects we have a benevolent, not always competent government. No, no single government is entirely competent. But we also have a remarkable government. I know many people who work for public lands agencies who are very good people, very dedicated to their work, good scientists, good educators, who take great pride and great heart in trying to make the world a better place. So uh, just relax and enjoy the fact that you've got these national parks and all that other land out there that you can raise your cattle on or drill, dig, dig for uranium or what, what you feel you need to do. But these places are sacred. By the way, out of curiosity, what were you doing in Soviet Union, Eastern Bloc? I was, you know, it was interesting. It was 7980. I, I spent the the Christmas of 1979 in, in um, Istanbul. I was just traveling. I was a young writer. I was keeping a journal. And if you remember Christmas Day of 79, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Mm, right. And they, they said they were going in there to kick out the American CIA, which was malarkey. Um, and then I went into, from there, I went into Bulgaria and Romania and worked my way up to Kiev and then into Moscow. And then I went across the Trans-Siberian Railway. And I had a retired general from the Red Army as a, as a roommate. He spoke fluent English, and it was fascinating to spend all those days speaking with him. And I just thought I was going to spend the rest of my life hearing and reading about the Soviet Union, the great Soviet menace. And um, so I went to see it for myself. Um, I traveled a lot when I was young. And then, that was the spring of 1980, going across the Trans-Siberian Railway. It was unthinkable to me that the, the whole system would collapse peacefully in another 10 years. I, I couldn't imagine it. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, just, just amazing. Uh, you say you met, you met people. You, you, you saw the scars of. of the yeah, system. I was in Sofia, Bulgaria, with a guy. We were talking. He was a writer too. He wanted to buy my jeans off me, and and another guy too in Kiev. He went and showed me where Golda Meir had been born. I just met so many incredible guys. I had a KGB guy following me in Kiev and Moscow and everywhere in the Soviet Union because all the American tours had been canceled because of the whole Afghanistan thing. President Carter was then boy threatening to boycott the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow, which he did eventually. I was there in February, March, and April of 1980 in the Soviet Union. And, um, I was talking to this one guy, and he had this beautiful girlfriend, and they lived in this little apartment in Sofia. She worked in a shoe factory like six days a week, 10 and 12 hours a day. And uh, I said, yeah, we hear stories in America about you guys, dissidents, and you how you're taken to the gulag and you're treated poorly. He says, it, it's true, God damn it. And he, and he threw off his shirt and there were all these welts, these huge welts across his back where he'd been beaten in a gulag and he'd been there for five years. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Um, we just have a few minutes left with Kim Hecox. By the way, we are talking with Kim Hecox, who is a writer, photographer, and a conservationist. Uh, his website is uh, kimhecox.com. Uh, the last name is H-E-A-C-O-X. You can see his books there. I want to t- uh, talk just a little bit, Kim Hecox, uh, about animals, about the wildlife. It's a big part of why we, we go out into the national parks. Uh, here's another um, Kimism. This is from Rhythm of the Wild. Bear or no bear, it's not the bear itself, but the possibility of seeing one that makes us see everything else in greater detail. Right. First, see a 
bear track. You'll be out. Uh, I see a lot of these in Alaska, and they can be so large. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the grizzly bears are the uh, interior bears. They're more than 75 miles from the coastline. But along the coast, you've got the Alaska brown bear, and they're larger because they have more... Uh, they have a strong salmon diet. They eat more protein. And their tracks can be so big. And when you first see a track, it, everything changes. And the bear can be anywhere and everywhere. And it's so vital for you, the vitality that surges through your body. It's paleolithic. You just, you're just you're living 20,000 years ago. How often do you get an opportunity like that in America today? You know, stuck in freeway traffic and in Cleveland or Salt Lake City or where have you. It's just, it's so valuable. Uh, and so, yes, a- animals, to have these relationships with animals. And if you've not read Carl Safina's new book called Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, we're just beginning to understand now that animals have deep emotions. They, they grieve the loss of each other. They hold wakes. Uh, uh, we've come a long way since Rene Descartes 400 years ago said to his medical students when they were when they were cutting open live animals in the lab when they were screaming in pain he said don't pay any attention to that they're just machines breaking down because he he, he had announced cogito, cogito ergo sum I think therefore I am only human beings have emotions have souls have consciousness everything else is works to perfect uh, you know, mechanical universe, and there, he really did believe that. So we've come so far in the last 400 years because of Carl's book, Carl Safina's book, Beyond Words, and the fact that we have national parks where people can go out and and have these profound relationships, run into a wild animal, and come home with a story. There's nothing like a great story. By the way, I had the opportunity to interview uh, Carl Safina uh, last year on this program. Wonderful. Uh, so that book is Beyond Words by uh, Carl Safina, and we'll have that on the website uh, as well. Just have a couple of minutes left, um, and I want to get this one in. This is a chemism. Uh, this is from The Only Kayak. If loons invented the music of being alone, cranes invented the music of being together. Right, Sandhill cranes. They migrate through my, my home in Alaska, coming down from the Arctic, and they, they, sandhill cranes are among the oldest birds on the face of the earth, and so are loons. They've been around for tens of millions of years, and you know what's great? We've changed so much of the face of the earth. We've changed 65% of the face of the, of the planet on the land surface area. The oceans are changing with plastics, and they're acidifying. I read once recently, if you took the 4.5 billion history of the year, 4.5 billion year history of the Earth and condensed it down to 45 days, in the last 10 minutes of that 45-day history, human beings have eliminated half of the forests on the face of the Earth. And despite that, despite our heavy hand, we still have cranes and we still have loons. And loons do have that solitary, plaintive call. And they're, and they're probably calling to a mate across the lake. And cranes, when they fly together in that fluting voices of theirs, celebrating another great migration, following the stars and the coastlines, just as they did 15 million years ago. It's so profound. 
Uh, it just blows my mind. And uh, we do have sandhill cranes in Utah. It's so beautiful. You can you can go see them. It's a wonderful opportunity. Um, so we've reached the the end of our time. Uh, you can go and uh, check out Kim Hecox's books at kimhecox.com. And uh, it's been our pleasure to be talking with writer and photographer and conservationist Kim Hecox. Thank you so much. Thank you. Earlier in the program, we talked with Robert Ratcliffe, chief of the National Park Service's Conservation, Recreation, and Community Assistance Programs. This year marks the 100th birthday of the National Park Service. And we'll be doing more programs on this as well. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, we will revisit a program uh, from last year. Uh, Steph Davis, a Moab resident, uh, climber, uh, has written an interesting book called Learning to Fly. It's a memoir. And it's out now in paperback with an updated uh, final chapter. Steph Davis's uh, book, Learning to Fly, we'll revisit that conversation tomorrow on Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Hi, I'm Jill Deacon. Joel Green died of cancer when he was just five years old. Next time on Q, his parents will tell us about the video game they made about his experience and why it's the right vehicle to tell their son's story. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us Wednesday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Hey diddle diddle, a section of fiddles, the horn jumped over the moon. The audience cheered to hear such sport, and the flute ran away with the tune. The New York Philharmonic plays Mother Goose by Maurice Ravel in concert at Lincoln Center in New York City on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us Wednesday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. The time now is 10 o'clock.